That's because there are no games, not because that's cheap. Uh, it's I'm only cheap because there are no games. You know, it is really hard to keep a website operating with three percent of its normal traffic. I got to be honest. Three percent. Wow. I mean, well, yeah, three. I mean, three games is fewer than three percent of the, the games that would have been played by now, too. So there would have been hundreds in the books uh, this deep into the season. The past, I'd say probably what week has been quite nerve wracking, um, you know, and I, obviously our game Saturday with trying was canceled, uh, you know, outside of our control and that's probably one of the hardest things is because, you know, I, our guys have done such a phenomenal job. Oh, I'm excited. I'm happy that we finally get get back on the field and get to actually do what we love to do. I mean, you have to have a lot of sacrifices. Uh, we really haven't been able to live the normal college life that everyone gets to do. That's for anyone, but it's a little different for football players. We have to quarantine a lot, stay away from teammates. You know, the NCAA gave us, uh, you know, 114 days to use, and we're going to use those days as much as we possibly can. And um, we're going to get in the weight room, and we got to get bigger and faster and stronger. And then we got to get out here, and we got to keep learning uh, the offense and the defense, and we got to keep working on special teams. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. You just heard from Bluffton coach Aaron Kreps, Adrian running back Stephen Moses, Trine quarterback Alex Price, and Manchester coach Nate Jensen. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been involved with the site since 1999. To define how that actually works. Well, I'm the former defensive back turned writer turned editor who's been at Pat's side for most of the site's history and all of the podcast history. But I don't know if you can say I'm involved with the site this season. I haven't watched a game or written a word, not even as a tweet. Normally this time of year, you and I would be about 14 podcasts deep and we'd be ruminating about opponents, opponents winning percentage and results against regionally ranked opponents. Here on the East Coast, when the leaves change colors, we'd be midway through conference play and rivalry games would be approaching homecomings would be happening and they're not early november for so many people means mona and bell dutchman shoes cortica jug the little biggest game in america or the biggest little game in america and the game and in the end of october you start making plans with your your old college buddies or your parents to make sure they they can make it to campus and and none of that is happening and yet this is going to be an interesting podcast how is it possible that there's nothing going on and yet so much is going on yeah, and I just think now, uh, you know, the Cortica Jug and Amherst Williams both kind of lay claim to the biggest little game in America moniker. Uh, maybe one of them should be the little biggest game in America and the other can be the biggest little game in America. Could it be like the Tommy Johnny game where it switches every year if the littlest beats the big? Never mind. Never yeah, mind. I, there, there definitely has to be some sort of gamification of this, right, where we uh, reassign that, uh, that name, you know, based on whatever, uh, whatever we decide we want to do. So those voices you heard, those are the voices of players and coaches who had games and or had uh, games scheduled in October. And those are the schools that we're focused on here in this edition of the podcast. Who are they? What did they do to make sure they could take the field this fall, etc.? And we'll talk more about that. And we'll talk to those people more in depth as we go on. Of course, there's also, you know, discussion uh, and hopes for conferences taking the field in the spring. Uh, a lot of conferences have said... Yes, we intend to play football or we intend to play our fall sports in the spring. But we got about a half dozen conferences who have actually gone so far as to post schedules. And there's some big ones here. Uh, the ASC. <laughs> scheduled to start its slate off in February. The OAC. Putting some games on Friday nights in the spring. The PAC. The MIAA. The HCAC. Is playing like a full slate, not just the five games that uh, you can play and not give up a, a season of eligibility. And then the NAC, the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference, uh, is, uh, has got its schedule out there as well. It should be very interesting. Of course, you know, obviously all the caveats, right? Even a week ago, we thought that Trine was going to play Bluffton and that didn't happen. And now imagine, you know, the possibility of, you know, six different conferences dealing with that. Who knows what the state of 
the pandemic will be in the spring or in February or in January, maybe even when, uh, you know, some of these teams take the field for beginning of their preseason practice. But I would really hope that we get to see some of these games. Yeah. And, and I, I think it is going to be touch and go just as this fall has been touch and go. And I think a lot of people have based their thought process and, and maybe it's just, you know, human nature and wishful thinking around the idea that everything is going to snap back to normal or there's going to be a point where we know it's okay to play. And I don't know if that's happening. And, and I think, you know, the bit, the larger divisions have seen it with some, some conferences of the power five deciding to play some not deciding to play. And then one, the big 10, which is starting this, this weekend and uh, overlaps with a lot of uh, D three populated areas um, deciding not to play. And then, and then deciding it, they are going to play and not really being clear on, on what's different or what's changed, just that the, the, the colleges have become more comfortable with the amount of testing that they're putting forth. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, we'll hear it a little bit later in this podcast, the teams, when the, the, the players are engaged and have games to look forward to, they are not only more likely to follow uh, the directives, but also um, they're just constantly monitored. And so they, they may be safer and the college may be able to contain a potential outbreak a little sooner just by, uh, just by being able to play. So all that goes to say that I don't know if there's going to be a, a clear time when we just know, okay, spring football is good. Uh, it's going to be a little different for everyone. And it's going to be how, how comfortable the conferences feel with the protocols that are put in place. But those are uh, schools that uh, intend to take the field in the spring. Uh, there are a couple that didn't make it this far and uh, did not uh, make it out of the fall. Uh, you know, Occidental didn't uh, didn't make it this far. They announced that they were dropping the program uh, as well as Maine Maritime. Both of these schools dropping uh, football over the course of the past couple of months and including at Occidental. This is a program that was really trying to come back off of the mat and whose alumni had raised one million dollars in uh, support of doing so more than a, a million dollars that uh, had been raised over the course of the past couple of years. And, you know, it is just uh it's kind of heartbreaking to see that, especially uh, for Occidental, which as you know, as recently as 2008, a national quarterfinal team, and then Coach Dale Weedolf got uh, run out of town. Basically, I think it's fair to I'm going to say it's fair to say that. And then the the, the program really never uh, never was able to maintain itself after that. And it's it's really a shame because it's not only a beautiful campus and a well regarded uh, school, but um, but it's been proven that you can have football success there and uh, it's Southern California, you know, you should be able to find football players because California is one of the most um, populated and football happy States in, in the union. Yeah. I think it's very much like when Swarthmore did this back in 2000, uh, they're very similar schools, similar student bodies, similar uh, administrative attitudes towards football. I, I think similar from just reading other people, obviously not the football players or alumni, but reading other people talk about Occidental football on Twitter that there, you know, there were a lot of people there who were saying, why do we have to have all of these football players on campus? Which drives me crazy when people say that. Yeah. And especially in, in D3 where the football players are the type of students that you would be bringing to campus uh, anyway, in a lot of cases, you know, some, some schools, maybe been their admissions rules, but in a lot of, in a lot of cases, you know, I, I mean, I can speak specifically to me. I certainly wouldn't have considered some of the schools I, I ended up visiting and, and the one that I went to without football, but there's no doubt that I fit in there and belong there. And um, it's just, it, it is kind of a, you know, each college has its own culture and uh, you know, it, it's probably different at a place like Occidental or a place like Swarthmore and, you know, Grinnell is, is maybe another one that that has is going through a tough time with its program. We saw it happen in Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark was was a college that was able to save its program and, and bring it back from the brink of extinction. So it can be done. You know, looking back, I don't know how much um, the Centennial Conference, which has been really, really successful, uh, even on the national stage the past few years, I don't know how much they they um, miss Swarthmore and, and I don't know how much, you know, Pennsylvania football seems to survive without it. But, um, but certainly if you're a Swarthmore alum, um, and someone who had played for that program in your program, that was the pride of your life and some of the great experiences of your life up until a certain point, And then it kind of just vanishes into thin air over the course of a year or two. 
um, it's, it's got to be frustrating. And, and those people, and, and this is going to be true in the case of Occidental, those people will miss that program uh, forever. I know it's been 20 years, but I am not over the Swarthmore thing. It's just, uh, it just continues to drive me crazy. Uh, we've talked about the teams that have played so far in October. There's, of course, a game scheduled for November as well, and that is the Secretary's Cup game between Merchant Marine and Coast Guard. Um, you know, Keith, I know you have been to Merchant Marine Coast Guard games. I have been to games at Merchant Marine and games at Coast Guard, but not uh, head-to-head games. You know, we talk about uh, service academies uh, in Division Three, and in general, this is a place where you have more you know, ability to kind of keep something like this in check, to keep people on campus, to, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And and the students who attend these institutions, you know, obviously know what kind of commitment they're getting into and what kind of commitment they're getting into after graduation. And it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a different collegiate atmosphere. And it's not surprising to me that, uh, that they felt a football game between these two institutions would work. Yeah, and, and think about, when we talk about Amherst and Williams and how the NESCAC doesn't advance, uh, they don't t- take a playoff bid. And so that game, especially when those programs are both good at the same time, it really is the height of, of, of NESCAC football. It's the height of those, those players' careers because that game, the last game of the season, the rivalry game, it means everything, not just to win the rivalry, but it's, it's the end of your season one way or the other. You either go out happy and you spend that whole – offseason um, smiling and feeling good about yourself or you, you spend that whole offseason really frustrated back in the weight room working and thinking you got to win that game next year when the whole season is literally one game. I mean, imagine how much, um, you know, pressure and uh, and importance is going to be on the outcome of, of the Merchant Marine Coast Guard game. It, uh, it would certainly be uh, weird without the pomp and circumstance. I mean, as with any game with, uh, with the service academy part of, um, the football game is also, you know, taking that time to appreciate what those um, those people do for our country when you when you graduate from one of those academies. And uh, for Merchant Marine and Coast Guard, certainly not as well known as as Army Navy, but it, but no less important. Um, and and I think too because these programs have the limitations of of who they can recruit, they can't just go out and and um, blanket Florida or, you know, go across Pennsylvania and go to every college fair and try to get as many players in as they want and then let them sort themselves out until they get starters. You know, these you have to find people, and this was probably the case with Maine Maritime too, you have to find people who want to do this um, for life or, or for at least a career choice to begin with and then also want to play football. So there's all these kind of parameters or, or you know, constrictions that make make it such a an interesting and important game and and if you're going to save one on the calendar certainly this is the one to save i think it may be a little weird if there's if there's no crowd there or if there's limited crowd but um but it was uh there was something that was said on on in the huddle show that um kind of crystallizes why they're playing this game in the fall and they they made the effort to save the season it's because um you know folks who go to merchant marine for example um, as sophomores, they spend four years, four years, four months at sea. And I think as juniors, they spend eight months at sea. So they're not around in the spring yeah. to, to play this season later. You, they can't not only do they not do spring ball, there's, there was no other time to do it. And so uh, for all those reasons, it'll be pretty cool if and when they do play this game. I feel like this one's more of a when, but you're right. If always has to be the uh, always has to be the default. Um, and that kind of brings us back to last Saturday, right? This was supposed to be a, ga- a day where there was a double header, which is why I got in the car to drive 580 miles to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort Wayne's kind of halfway in between uh, those two schools, but uh, because uh, Ohio had travel restrictions, uh, Bluffton wasn't able to go to Indiana and play at Trine on Saturday afternoon. Too many, uh, too many positive tests for COVID. In Indiana and Bluffton would have had to quarantine for two weeks after coming back from uh, from that game. So that game did not get played, but they played a full speed scrimmage, and I got to talk to Coach Troy Abs and uh, starting quarterback Alex Price. Price still wearing his uh, red jersey. That was the one concession to the scrimmage was that the you know, the quarterbacks were uh, untouchable. So Alex talked about the importance of getting these two games in after he started the last half of the season in 2019 as the starting quarterback as a freshman. 
getting these uh, few games in this uh, fall was just really important. You know, it builds confidence. I'm more, I know what I'm doing more. I'm more confident in what I'm doing. And as a player on the field, I have improved a lot. I'm making a lot better, more passes, running the ball better. And so it's just been a lot of good experience having these two games that no one else has been able to have. A couple hundred people in attendance at this scrimmage, and uh, there's plenty of room to space out in a stadium where Trine is usually going to draw close to 4,000 people. Uh, we'll talk with Abs a little bit more about this game later on in the podcast, and we'll also talk with Bluffton coach Aaron Kreps, whose team, as of now, just checked my email again, is still preparing to play Adrian this weekend. Adrian's got one of the breakout players of this uh, kind of uh, October uh, pandemic classic in uh, running back Stephen Moses. He moved over from defense to join the Bulldogs' backfield under coach Jim Deere this year. Yeah, it's, it's totally different from uh, defense when I I like playing uh, safety. So it's um I like playing running back, though. I'm getting the hang of it. It's coming to me naturally, so I like it. O-line is blocking well. Everybody's getting on the same page, and that's how everything's happening. Moses has run for 190 yards and two touchdowns in the two games, but his coach only wanted to talk about Stephen Moses, the man. Here's more from Jim Deere. Yeah, he, he is a man, and I, I mean that in every sense of the word. Um, he came over, started playing defense for two years, and then uh, we moved into offense. He didn't want to. He wanted to play defense and made him a running back, but his story goes a lot deeper. That kid... Uh, he served in our armed forces, um, has two kids, he's 27 years old. Uh, it's just a great, great story for, for that young man. You have a lot of other things going on other than football and school. He's, he's basically, uh, you know, he, I, I give him all the credit. And one of the things is, is he's a great leader for those young kids to understand that, hey, always take advantage of your opportunity, even if you're 27 years old. Keith, you know, those of us in our well, I guess late 40s for me, mid 40s for you, early 40s even. I'm not sure. It's hard for me to remember, you know, what it would be like to have a 27 year old guy, a 27 year old man in the in the huddle on the sidelines with you when you're 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah, and and I sometimes think it's it's less about the number, uh, too, but it but it's about the you know life experience to that point, and uh, and the maturity. We've talked about it many times over the years. Uh, you and I have, have done this podcast long enough to remember, you know, there have been All-American quarterbacks with a child. Um, there have been uh, All-American linebackers who served in the armed forces. Here's someone who's done both and uh, and just probably brings a level of seriousness to, uh, to football and also um, a level of joy. I think that rubs off on other people just – I think when you're 18, 19, sometimes 20, 21, I don't want to say you take football for granted because I think coaches hammer that pretty hard, but you just feel kind of invincible and like your career will last forever. And you don't quite have the perspective that, you know, not only, not only is your is your career only 40 games, if you're lucky, um, you know, 45 or something like that, but you don't generally don't start for the whole entire time. And then any of your seasons could be cut short in any game you play. And so, Having someone in the huddle that rubs off on you, that's like the take this very seriously, but also savor it because um, because life is real uh, after football. It gets really serious after that. And and to just enjoy it, I think um, that can only help the, the players in your program. To have someone who's had some really serious life experience come in and bring you the mix of those things, like put, put everything into football, not because football is life, but because uh, life beyond football is is so difficult. And this is... Um, one of the last ways you can enjoy it and, and push yourself to see, um, you know, what you can do without, uh, without having life altering consequences on the line. You know, you're just in, in essence, just winning and losing a game. So this was a big night for Manchester. Uh, they were obviously, they were all but shut down by the Adrian starting defense, uh, but it was opening night for the Spartans in their new stadium. And even though it looked like uh, maybe only parents were allowed inside the gates and there were maybe 50 people in the stands, uh, there were a handful of students watching from outside as well when the game started. Here's Nate Jensen to tell us a little bit more about, you know, just being able to put fans in the stands. Obviously, this facility is is, is outstanding and something to be very, very proud of. And, you know, we, today was actually our graduation for our 2020 seniors. And so a lot of them were back on campus and they had an opportunity to come out here before the game. And I saw caps and gowns as I was there. Yep, yep. It was, it was very interesting, you know, and we had those guys back. But, you know, our, our alumni base and, 
you know, our supporters of the, of the football program and Spartan Athletics is really great when you can look at a facility like this. And, you know, it's, it's just outstanding for us. Keith, this stadium's just a couple hundred yards from their old stadium. And, uh, yeah, so the new one is a perfectly average Division Three football stadium that is so much better than the one it replaced. I'm really, you know, I'm struggling to come up with a frame of reference for people. Let's just say that old stadium, not very good. Yeah, I remember seeing a play of the week submission back in those days, for those of you who used to follow the site then, and it was literally just a field. And the, the only field I think I felt as sorry for was Plymouth State, which was at one time surrounded by a literal picket fence, if I recall correctly. Wow. Wow. You know, this kind of stuff really matters in recruiting, maybe not as much as making athletes feel at home on campus or with their potential teammates, but certainly when you're trying to convince 18-year-olds to envision success for themselves, having a standing edifice as a testament to the commitment your college community provides the program, that helps. Yeah, so stadium improved. That The team's going to have some growing pains. Uh, Jensen's team definitely struggled in its two games in October, losing those two by a combined uh, score of 78-10. to 10. But again, just playing is a positive. We played two really good football teams. I mean, I mean I've known Coach Habs and Coach Deer for a long time, you know, coming from the MIAA when I was at Alma. And, you know, I knew that both these games were going to be really, really tough challenges for us. Um, you know, I was proud of the kids, the kids effort, um, but they got to understand that we just got to keep growing up and, you know, our seniors, they got to keep leading and our, our juniors, they got to lead and, and our, our first years, you know, they got to keep, keep growing. Playing in the season they're supposed to be playing in. I, obviously very meaningful as, uh, as we have harped on many times now, just in the course of the past, you know, 25 minutes or whatever, uh, very rare in division three, only four schools and hopefully up to a half dozen have had the opportunity to do this. And, 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 you know, I think all of us understand the caution with which all the other schools that aren't in this half dozen group have, have been proceeding with. And um, I, I don't judge or, or look down on anybody who decided not to play or anybody who decided to play um, because it was such a difficult decision. And, and honestly, if you're more interested in it, uh, I think it was maybe two podcasts ago where, you know, we, really, we've discussed it pretty much ever, ever since March where, you know, you're, you're looking at difficult situations for players who have to decide, do I want to play an abbreviated season? Uh, do I want to skip school and not pay this semester and, and maybe try to come back yeah. uh, and have this um, gap in, in my career? But but I think that the thing you, you touched on, too, is playing in the season that you're supposed to be playing in. If we moved games to the spring, which looks – uh, increasingly likely for most of Division Three, what happens to the 2021 season? Does it start on time? And if it does, can a body handle yeah. um, playing, you know, five, eight, ten games in the spring and then turning around and trying to do the same thing? Do you recognize yourself as the 2021 conference champ? I mean, there's all these like little things that that um, that really play into it. But I think the, the most difficult one too would be if somebody were to suffer a you know, torn ACL in the spring, do you, you know, do you miss two seasons of eligibility within one calendar year? Are you ready to do a uh, top 25 or a top 20 or a top 15 or a top 10 poll in the spring? I mean, we, could, we could do right now, we can do a top six for the fall and then just take it from there. I think we do a top four. <laughs> Trine number one, Adrian number two, Manchester three, Bluffton has yet to play, so four, and then Virgin Marine and Coast Guard, right? Right, right, right. I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by Nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, you know, coaches who may have a little more time on their hands, or maybe looking to plan completely different things. You have the opportunity to reach that audience right now by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product or service right here during our break. We would have done it like 20 minutes earlier for a paid sponsor, let's be honest. Uh, so think about it and drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We still average nearly 4,000 downloads apiece on the past two podcasts, so you guys are missing out on this opportunity. Now with the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, joined by Aaron Kreps, the head coach at Bluffton University. His team 
Been waiting, been waiting multiple weeks. I think normally this would be week eight, and we would be, uh, you guys would be taking the field finally after watching, you know, another Heartland Conference team play and two MIAA teams play and having a game canceled last uh, last week. So uh, what is it, be- first of all, thanks for joining us, and what has it been like for you and for the guys kind of sitting and, and waiting and preparing all this time? Well, first off, Pat, thank you for inviting me to be on, uh, as I mentioned. Prior to going live, this is, uh, this is a big day for me to be able to be a, f- what, 15-year follower uh, of, of the site, to have the chance to be on with you is a big milestone, there's no doubt, so appreciate you. But uh, the past, I'd say probably what week has been quite nerve-wracking, um, you know, and I, obviously our game Saturday with Triumph was canceled, uh, you know, outside of our control and... That's probably one of the hardest things is because, you know, I, our guys have done such a phenomenal job, um, as we call it, uh, protecting the dam here at Bluffton. And they're doing everything we're asking them to do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, for that to kind of kind of be pulled out uh, from underneath us right at the last minute was very, very hard. But, you know, I'm just excited the boys have rebounded quickly. Uh, we still have this week, uh, knock on wood, everything up to today. And us talking at this point is uh, – we're still all green lights. So we're just holding out hope that we can get to Saturday. Right. And uh, we've mentioned this elsewhere in the podcast, but basically uh, because of travel restrictions in Ohio, based on uh, going to Indiana, you guys weren't able to travel last week because of the state of Indiana uh, and the state of, uh, you know, testing in Indiana. And uh, I did not look at Michigan's numbers. Presumably you guys are able to uh, travel to Michigan so far. No problem. Yes, sir. We are still good there. Those uh, those numbers came out, I guess, I think last Wednesday, Thursday for us with Indiana. And there's been, a, I guess, a spike there. So uh, state government set up some travel advisories and kept us home. And uh, we're just hoping the, that everything stays good with Michigan here this week. What's it been like? You know, how long have you guys been practicing? What have you guys been doing in the however many weeks it's been between that and taking the field on the 24th? What is it? Seven, eighth week now? One, two, three, four, five. I think if you started at Labor Day or whatever, then this would be seventh week. week. Yeah, seventh week. We went two weeks of uh, groups of 10, two weeks of groups of 50. So we followed the NCAA uh, recommendations there. Uh, Didn't go in the pads until we went full team. Um, And so we had really, we had about a four day team session or team practices day off. And then that put us right into game week, which would have been last week with trying, uh, you know, we had our normal or typical game week last week in preparation for trying um, with that being kind of shot. We ended up working out throughout the, the weekend. You know, you're just, you're running on limited time, especially the team reps at this point, those first two weeks we did or first four month, really there were zero team reps. So, um, you know, we, we, we got through a lot of individual work, which we, normally wouldn't have coming into a season and in camp situations, right? You're trying to cram everything in and get ready for the season. So we were able to kind of slow things down, but uh, on the back end, we were really missing a lot of those team reps. And, uh, you know, we've just, just we have just been trying to make that up here in the past really two weeks. So. Can you compare that to what say the normal division three spring practice is like, is it pretty similar? Uh, I think the first two weeks similar in, in a sense, especially our, 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 our really the second stage when we were in the groups of 50 because we were able to do some some competitive things. I mean, you still were missing the offense-defensive line uh, mm-hmm. standpoint yeah. there with the one-on-ones and, um, you know, with all the testing protocols and things like that, you know, we uh, it made it a challenge because we were doing everything we can to, to limit – some of the contact uh, early on at least and, until we got into the padded uh, session. So um, it was very similar though, uh, at least for that first month to being like what we would have in our spring ball. You know, obviously just being able to put guys on the field, uh, it's gotta be a big deal for Bluffton just as a university this year, right? I mean, we talk about, you know, look at the enrollment numbers and I'm not entirely sure how many guys are in the football program right now, but in general, the Bluffton football program makes up a pretty large part of the Bluffton enrollment. It does. And, you know, we're thankful. Dr. Wood has been uh, amazing and a a big, big reason that we're on the field, a big reason that we're one of what I think six schools in the country getting an opportunity to play this fall. And 
you know, her, her protect the dam plan has worked very, very well. We're a prime example of that with, you know, over, you know, hundred, what we think we came in at 130 and, you know, for us to be, to be, you know, doing what we've done, I think as a program shows that, you know, we can be a model for this. And, and it was, it was really, you know, her plan, our administrations, and, you know, we've done, uh, everything we can to follow it because of that, you know, we know we're very blessed that we've had this opportunity because I know there's a lot of guys that would be happy to be sitting with you right now talking about game prep, getting ready for this weekend. So uh, more than grateful for the opportunity and our, our boys bought into that and, and understand that, you know, we're one of the very few and they're, they're doing everything with masks, with the, the testing, the very uncomfortable test. And uh <laughs> just all those different things. And we, we, we're trying to make it as normal as possible. I mean, that's, that's probably been the biggest nightmare on the coaching side of it. These, these couple of weeks, especially once you get in the pads because of the restrictions and just cause we're in full team, there's still other restrictions, whether it's the weight room or cafeteria and uh, spaces to meet, like there's, there's so many things that go into it. And that's probably been the biggest challenge uh, I think from us as coaching is, I mean, when I get out to the field at four o'clock, it's, it's like heaven because all that stuff we've, we've got to that point and, uh, you know, just made it really good. It has to be by the time you get out to the field, you can actually just be a football coach, right? You don't have to be health practitioner slash logistics person slash all of those other things that are going into, you know, making coaching happen this year. 100%. I mean, that's what the guys on the staff even were like. It's, it feels good to game plan. I mean, just <laughs> it's some for us at this point, you know, in the, in the season, it's just, it, it's normal. Like there's pieces of the day that just come back as very normal for us. And that's just grateful for it. Third season at Bluffton. Uh, I went back through your bio and of course was reminded uh, of course your days at W and J, uh, including two time D three football.com all American. I'm surprised we got this far into the interview without me saying that. I'm sure I will have said it earlier in the podcast multiple times. Um, you know, so tell us what it's like, you know, just uh, the Bluffton experience as part of Division Three as a whole. You know, what is, what's, what's Bluffton football like? Uh, just, it's a great, it's a great place. I mean, just starting with the university campus, I mean, one of the, first things that drew me in are just the people on our campus. We've got amazing people to work with, whether it's within our department, on our campus, business office, administration, it doesn't really matter. I mean, there's always a smile and a lending hand and a helping hand around campus. So, you know, that was one of the first things that I noticed, uh, even just uh, in my very first interview on campus was that. So, um, you know, we're in a very competitive conference and, you know, we're we're two recruiting classes in, so we, uh, I was the OC for the first year being on campus, so this is fourth year on campus, but um, co our, our head coach left over the summer, promotion happened, we're very lucky that that happened for, for me to take that next step, but um, it, it took us really all the way up to camp just to get our staff together, so we kind of came in behind the eight ball there a little bit uh, that first season, and then, you know, we've uh, been able to start building, you know, and uh, recruiting and things have picked up very much. We're a very, very young team right now. I mean, uh, two thirds of our class or of our team is in our freshman sophomore classes right now. Um, you know, but we've, we've done, I think a very good job uh, branding, getting ourselves out in the region. And, and it's just that process. You know, we, I think we were very competitive last year. We didn't win many games, you know, on the record, but if you, if you look at the box scores, we were in, all those games, you know, it was just young team trying to find ways and learn how to finish football games. So it's a process, you know, and, and kind of understood it was going to be uh, with this, but, you know, we've uh, fortunate just was, have been able to put a really good staff together. We got a bunch of young guys that, that love this and, you know, they're, they're lifers in the profession. And, and that's important because of, you know, some of the things have been a division three university year, you, uh, you wear a lot of hats and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and you know that as well as anybody else, but you know, and it starts with the people, like I said, the people on our campus, the people in our program, and you know, we've done a good job really finding the guys that fit us. I know you have obviously a game on the schedule this week and we're going to drop this podcast presumably on Saturday morning. So if any of that changes, uh, the, the <laughs> listeners may know before we do, uh, but you know, then you have uh, a pretty full schedule in the spring of, of all the conferences that are uh, that have announced what they're planning on doing in the spring. The HCAC has been pretty aggressive 
in terms of having a really full schedule. So, you know, what's that like for you guys? Did, and did you have anybody who said, you know, because there's not going to be a, a playoff this year and we're going to use a year of eligibility with all of these games, was there anybody who said that they were not going to participate because of that? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. You know, we did, we had that. And I guess kind of way we looked at it, and I know at least from my uh, my standpoint, even with our staffs, because I know that the, that five-game limit for yeah. whether you're using it or not, and a lot of conferences aren't, and because of that, and when you kind of look at the numbers, everybody has to do what's best for their, their program and their teams. And, you know, just knowing who we are, it wasn't something that was going to be on the plate for a lot of our guys yeah. um, that extra year and for, for a magnitude of reasons. But, you know, so I had to fight for those guys. And for, uh, for me, it's we had to find a way to play as many games as possible. And that sentiment was throughout the conference. You know what I mean? And it's just, again, it's just the makeup of our conference. And, and again, each individual coach what's best for their program. But that was kind of the, uni- the unanimous decision within the conferences. The majority of us wanted that. Like, whatever it took, let's play football games. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of them probably would be playing this fall if restrictions, you know, weren't what they are. Um, I'm just, again, thankful because president, our president, again, Dr. Wood, was, was a big supporter of that. She was driving that uh, within the conference as well. And, you know, we, it's great when you have administration on your side. There's no doubt about that. All right. And I have to ask you, although the listeners obviously are not seeing what I'm seeing over your shoulder, tell me who is uh, in the black and white frame photo there on the wall behind you. That's Coach Carlin Carpenter. Okay, sure. I recognize that name. Is the stadium named after him? Is that right? Uh, no, but he was, been a, he was a long time right, coach and head coach here. Um, all of the Ohio guys that come in here think that's Woody Hayes, but it's actually his <laughs> – Coach has the block letter B hat on. So, but from afar, it looks like the block O from Ohio State. So, um, with the shirt and tie at all. So, I under I can see it, but no, it's uh, it's Coach Carpenter. One of the deals first when I first got uh, got in here, it was uh, I went to archives and found a lot of old team pictures and program pictures of ex head coaches and stuff, and just to try to bring pull some of that tradition in our past. Yeah, I mean, it's all part of building a culture, right? And uh, when you get to take over a place that, you know, has had, uh, has a past and then has been, you know, kind of middle of the pack for a while, you you certainly want to take an opportunity to do that. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and that's what we, uh, our last conference championship team sits right across from me every day on our desk and on purpose, you know what I mean? It's just kind of constant reminders and we talk about those things with our guys all the time, you know, and it's just that it's the culture, but building it from the ground up. And, you know, thankfully the administration has been very supportive and, you know, and is allowing us to, to, to work it our way and take our steps as necessary. And, you know, we, heck next week, we're right back at it. So we've took kind of a three week uh, slowdown as we've been in pads to focus on our team here on campus, but we're, we're back to, campus visit starting Monday. So where's, there's no day, no days off right now. Who gets to attend on Saturday? Students and university staff and uh, professors. That's it. We've, uh, you no know, parents, no parents, uh, unfortunately, no, uh, I mean, my family uh, cannot attend. So, you know, in, and I get it, I support it. You know, we, uh, We've done a phenomenal job, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier in the podcast is, you know, we've done a really good job as a university uh, protecting what we have and our interests and, you know, creating the bubble of Bluffton. And, you know, we don't want to jeopardize it because there's still more after us. You know, I mean, our season might be over this weekend, but we still have basketball coming up. We have volleyball. There's still things coming and teams that are just starting to practice and, you know, we've been able to make it this far because we followed the instructions and the rules sent forth. And I want to make sure that that next program that's up gets that same opportunity. So I mentioned this earlier, but as of the time we're recording this podcast, which is on Friday afternoon, uh, a little bit less than 24 hours before game time, this game is still on. But, uh, you know, just to be able to get to doing game prep for a game this fall is a big deal for any coaching staff. I think what he said close to the end is worth spotlighting. It's easy to say players can come back for another year a year of eligibility, but at schools that cost tens of thousands of dollars, it's not safe to assume that everyone can or will do that. So for Coach Krebs to take that responsibility on himself and to try to play games this fall and to try to balance that with the responsibility of not messing up the situation 
for basketball and volleyball and all the winter and spring sports that come after, I think is admirable. Yeah, the the Bluffton bubble seems to be working pretty well, right? Coming from the top down, the president very big on protecting the dam. That's a D-A-M, of course, because Bluffton and Beavers, in case you guys are not fully making that connection. But uh, yeah, and then to you know have it so closed off that uh, students can come because they've been inside the bubble. They can come to this game on Saturday, but uh, nobody from the outside can. No parents, not even Coach Krebs's family. Uh, you know, I think that's... Uh, it, it's tough to do that, right? In uh, uh, in small colleges, it's tough to do that in colleges in general, as we've learned. But uh, again, it seems like they've done it, and this is the reward. Yeah, although I, th- I thought it's interesting to note, um, you know, that that Bluffton is in a, a part of Ohio that's qu- you know quite distant from where Mountain Union is in Ohio or where Marietta and Muskingum are. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, all these none of these states are are, are super tiny, and so. Bluffton's probably much closer to a to a trine or a um, yep. you know an Adrian or or um, Manchester right which are in uh, different states but uh, you know like trine for example being in Indiana and they have to go by Indiana state law and and you know it's nominally in Indiana if you look at the the map it's it's practically <laughs> in Michigan it's in that sure. top, that sort of top upper right corner and, and so that's why they, you know they they're a fit in the MIA geographically. But um, but there is that state line, and and they have to go by different rules. So um, the I'm glad the bl- the bubble is working for uh, for Bluffton. In any case, um, and can I just note that you made it through 15 minutes of Bluffton history without mentioning what, frankly, is the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Bluffton sports: um, the bus accident. Oh yeah! Wow, good point. So. Yeah, for the uninitiated, this is back in 2007. Bluffton's baseball team in a horrific bus accident on their spring trip. The driver went up a left side exit ramp outside of Atlanta at full speed. You know, didn't realize he was getting off the highway. Um, you guys, uh, you know, Google it. Uh, you can find D3Baseball.com coverage. I mean, you can find all sorts of coverage from it because it was a big deal. Five players died in that accident. Uh, you know, sports remains a big deal at Bluffton. Uh, as of their last report to the U.S. Department of Education, fully 58% of the student body participates in a varsity intercollegiate sport, and nearly one in every three men in the school is on the football team. This is a school that, you know, without sports and possibly without sports this fall, might not be open. On the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, chatting with Trine University head coach Troy Abs. His team 2 0 in the fall, and now the fall for these guys is done. A third game was scheduled for Saturday, what is this, October 17th, and was uh, and was canceled because of COVID. We'll d- dive into all of that, but coach, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time today. Well, anytime I can talk to you guys, it's awesome. Thank you very much. It's been an exciting fall here. It has been, and this is the sound of a scrimmage going on in the background. Uh, you guys were scheduled to play Bluffton today in the third of your three games that were scheduled for the fall. First off, just talk us through playing football this fall because you know there are only six teams that are planning to do it. Um, you know, only a, about half of them have actually taken the field so far. So, you know, just kind of walk us through when it was decided, how it was decided, and kind of how it's gone. When our conference decided to cancel MIAA play for the fall. They left it open to anybody that wanted to explore playing. And uh, Adrian, our rival, and, and us uh, decided to, to give it a go. Uh, it, it's, been, uh, it's been an awesome experience. Uh, I can guarantee you that I'm ready for things to get back to normal. But uh, it's, it's, our kids have had to, to make a lot of sacrifices that, that normal college kids don't. And our coaching staff is, has put a ton of, of effort and, and time into ensuring that we do this in the safest way possible. Uh, that's included having multiple practices a day where we practice from you know, our kicking coaches out here at 3 o'clock and doesn't leave the practice field until 8 o'clock at night most, most nights because we have three, or three to five different practices uh, with kids in pods so that if we, do have a, if we did have a flare-up, that uh, that flare-up would be contained, and we were very lucky to not have a flare-up uh, we, uh, we also spend a lot of time as a coaching staff going through symptom checks uh, and multiple symptom checks a day, checking the results of those. And, and any time we had uh, two 
two uh, symptom checks in a row where a kid was showed any symptoms at all or a temperature, we sent them to our health center, and then our health center uh, took took appropriate a, uh, action. So uh, we have had kids that have had to sit out until they could prove that they're healthy. But overall, it's been, a, I think, you can hear in the background, it's been a very positive experience for everybody. Yeah, and there are fans in the stands here. And uh, I would say, uh, is watching you guys on video in the previous home game against Manchester, you know, I would say maybe 200 people, something like that. They can make some noise, obviously. Yes, they did. Yeah, they're, our fans, uh, you know, we gave every athlete uh, two tickets and then if uh, or, or two tickets per household they're part of. So and then uh, we had the band here and the band had their parents and then the cheer squad had their their uh, theirs, theirs as well. So, uh, yeah, there are about probably 200 fans in attendance, and, but they were they were loud and they were proud. And it was a, it was a it was a different game day experience, much like today, but it was still a lot of fun. How many student athletes are in the program here for you this fall? Uh, right now we're at uh, 183, which is pretty typical for you. That's basically everybody, I would think. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's a little high for us. Typically we're in the 160 range, but uh, we had we 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 had a lot of interest last year, uh, and our our coaching staff worked very very hard. Uh oh, that's gonna be no. I almost had a pick six there by a young kids. So big long interception return there. Yeah. yeah. But uh, had uh, uh, just uh, coaching staff worked extremely hard during the offseason to identify some talent, talented kids from outside of the area. You know, we brought in some running, uh, a running back from, from Hawaii and Arizona and some kids that uh, are putting on a show right now out here on the, uh, on, the, on the game field. Some of this, like, real nuts and bolts stuff, like breaking kids, uh, breaking groups down into pods. How many people then like practice in one of those pods and what's, what, what are you kind of aiming for there? Typically our pods were anywhere from, from 25 to, well, first of all, when we first started, we started in groups of 10 and those groups of 10 were just um, in their position groups and, uh, you know, they were mainly conditioning activities and then that turned into more individual activities and then we were able to expand to to groups of 25 and uh, you know it, it, we could have gone all the way to 50 but we had very short practices you know 35 40 minute practices and had six practices a day um, so uh, some long practices for the coaches but and they work tirelessly they've been awesome uh, but uh, the the kids got the most out of their opportunities. There wasn't any wasted time. I mean, you know, sometimes you have lines at practice where guys are waiting to get in. Uh, we used those small groups so that there weren't lines. Guys were moving and they were, you know, the practices were 45 minutes, but I think if you gave them the choice between a 45 minute practice and a two hour practice like we're practicing this week, I think they'd take the two hour because they were busy that entire time. I was going to ask then, if do you envision changing some of that practice style when COVID's no longer a concern and you can practice however you please? You know, I, I really thought that the conditioning sessions that we did at the beginning of training camp uh, were really valuable and really showed us where our guys were. I think that, uh, you know, when we can, however the NCAA decides we'll be able to practice going forward in the future when we report in the fall, uh, I think that we benefit a lot from having more meeting time and more conditioning time than actually on the field football time, uh, especially in those practices where you're helmets only or just helmets and shoulder pads. So I think, uh, I think we really maximize some, some teaching and learning uh, during the first 10-day period this year where we weren't allowed to get out and do football. You know, we, you know we've, we've really you know, kept tabs on everything. Uh, when we came out with our testing protocol and everything, we made sure that we had a clean test before we came out and practiced. So we actually cut down on the number of days a week that we practice. And, and you know, we, we don't practice on Tuesdays. We practice Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, Fridays in the, in the past have typically been like a 40-minute walkthrough for us. But Fridays turned into a full special teams practice and a, and a, and a short walkthrough. And... Had, had, you know, the, from what we've seen, it hasn't affected us negatively on game day. You know, I, I hope that they've, I hope that they've learned that if they set their mind to doing something, that, that they can achieve it. Uh, there are a lot of people that, you know, say there's no way you can do this. There's no way, you know, you, you can, you can possibly play football in, in, in this era, and 
you know, I think it all comes down to the student athletes' willingness to sacrifice in order to play. They can't go to parties. They can't uh, go to large gatherings. They can't do the things that normal college kids do. And I'm really proud of the guys on our team that have sacrificed some of the other things and really focused on, on uh, their academics and football and put everything aside for a while. And, and, and unless you get a group of kids to do that, it's impossible to play. But I'm really proud of our guys for doing that. And you guys have proved that it's possible, at least within those uh, you know, restrictions that you mentioned. And of course, you know, kind of keeping the caveat in mind that you guys had three games scheduled and one of them didn't happen. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, we've learned from the NFL and I feel like the SEC is currently in the process of learning. Giving the kids the opportunity to play is winning. And I think football then in turn is a tool to curb the spread of coronavirus. I mean, it, the kids have something at stake. You know, we asked them to wear a mask. You'll see the guys on our, on our sidelines right now, are, most of them are, you know. and. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, a normal 18 to 22-year-old doesn't really have a true reason to, to wear a mask. You know, yes, we, we constantly remind 18 to 22-year-old men that you need to wear a mask and you need, to, you need to do it to protect others around you. But the fact is, if they get it and they're not around elders, um, and it, there's... Uh, there is a low percentage of risk. There is a percentage of risk that they could be that they could be harmed, but it is a, a low percentage of of risk to them. And I think having football as something to uh, guide their activities and encourage them to social distance, to wear a mask, is extremely valuable to any college campus. What do you hear from the rest of the conference? I mean, you guys are playing the other five slash six. Everybody's everybody's getting ready to play football, you know, and, and you know the, the the reaction to COVID-19 uh, and what everybody sees in the news and what everybody sees in the newspaper is very different in different geographic locations. Uh, you know, Indiana is more of a of a politically conservative state, so I think we look at things a little bit differently. Uh, our our COVID uh, climate, let's say, in northeastern Indiana. Uh, has been relatively safe. I mean, not completely safe, but safer than other areas. And all of that kind of plays into everybody's thoughts and attitudes about everything that's going on. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys are, are chomping at the bit, ready to play. And I think everybody in the MIAA wants to play football. Under COVID, just being able to play is a win, right? Abs said this a couple of times to me, and it is so true. Yeah, that's certainly an interesting theory and perhaps the best takeaway from this podcast as a whole. But I also found it interesting, and we've touched on this in, in previous pods, that the way everything has been done is now up for evaluation. I don't know for sure that we will ever go back to normal, quote unquote. But whatever the sport evolves into in the future, this might be looked back on as a period of great innovation. Should practices be shorter and in small groups? Should Tuesdays be off days and Fridays be for special teams? A lot of football things are done because that's the way they've always been done. Or we borrow from the coaches who taught us and tweak to fit our, you know, the, the newest uh, needs. Yeah, just one easy thing to point to on that, right? Abs used to call plays on offense for trying, but didn't this year because, you know, the program's pandemic response and planning meant that he was just too busy to do so. So now he's more of a CEO type head coach, and it'll be interesting to see if that sort of thing is uh, more true going forward as well. I also talked with another coach in the past couple of weeks who said he was learning how to live without football, right? You know, somebody comes up, they've been playing football since, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, you know play college, immediately go into a coaching job. Maybe you've coached for another 20 or 30 years after that. Um, and, you know, this is the first year for a lot of people without a, uh, a weekly uh, football schedule and cycle to prepare for. We've seen a number of Division three basketball coaches leave the profession over the offseason, and I wonder if, you know, more football coaches might not do the same. This is the opportunity to go back to school, get an MBA, uh, move into athletic administration or fundraising or any of the things that a coach's skills and contacts really makes them natural for. Pat, I'll be totally frank with you. I'm, I'm learning to live without football. You know, I played Pop Warner in high school and college and year semi-pro. And then we started doing the website. And, and uh, every year, you know, Saturdays, Sundays are, are spent um, 
know, even when I was a sports writer too, you know, I'd cover high school Fridays, college Saturdays, pros on Sunday. Um, you watched as a as a fan, you know, whether you live in Texas or Minnesota or California, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, more pro games. Now, I mean, you turn on the TV and, you know, there'll be a Tuesday, you know, the Bills and Chiefs might be playing at like seven o'clock on a Tuesday or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that's great. It's good to have some football on in the background, but it feels like the fall doesn't revolve around uh, football quite the way it, it has in the past. And, you know, like for me personally, as a NFL fan, I haven't spent all week obsessing over how the team does. I'll still watch the game on Sundays or in some cases, Thursday nights. I th- I think we get we get our fall back and I don't miss it as much as I thought I would. I really thought like, you know, this deep into the season with no D3 every Saturday, I'd have no idea what to do with myself. And I'd be like, man, you know, did uh, Co and Cornell play, you know, who, you know, whatever. <laughs> what was the Tommy Johnny score? You know, you know the, the right. how's Mary Hart and Baylor doing? Like we're missing all that. And and it's uh, maybe it's human nature and maybe we all learn this back in March and, and April, May and June when we had to figure out how to occupy our, our time without traveling to work or, um, or even, or some cases even having work, but um, you know, we're, we're pretty adaptable. It hasn't been as bad as I thought it would be. We're going to do our best to, to still be here the next time there is a football season, but uh, yes, I can't, uh, I can't deny that I'm also learning to fill my time uh, doing other things than following Division Three football or Division Three basketball 24-7-365. Like, is it a leap year? Is it, it not a leap it year? Is, it is a leap year, but it sounds really stupid to say uh, 24-7-366. So. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time of the podcast where we dive into Twitter, and we throw out that reminder on Twitter to hit us up when Keith and I are stepping into the so-called studio, and this one comes from Jim Catanzaro. Oh, LFC underscore football asking what storylines would be the most intriguing in a shortened spring season? Should coaches use it as compete to win everything or use it as developmental games? Great question. I love it. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's a straight on answer here because it it depends on um, where you are as a program, which I think is always true to some degree, but, but in this case, you know, you have to factor in how, how far are you in your build? You know, if you're like in year two, of your recruiting and your recruiting has been disrupted. Maybe it's a great time to, to, to focus more on development. Um, if you're Mountain Union or Mary Harden Baylor, I think the expectation remains the same as it always is. Uh, same thing for UW Whitewater, right? You're, you're, you want to win in, uh, whatever championship is available. No, no stag bowl in the spring. You just want to win the, the WIAC or the OAC or the ASC. You want to win every game you play. Um, but I think the answer that probably applies across the board and, and probably for Coach Katz's program too is, um, and this is what makes coaching so difficult, is is everything is always both of those things. <laughs> you're always trying to win and develop everybody at the same time, and you're yeah. trying to balance those two. So um, maybe you're looking for an opportunity in a mean, to, to put a player in a meaningful situation where he hasn't been before or you're looking for an opportunity when a game gets out of hand to get somebody some game experience just to get their feet wet. Um, my coaching experience, of course, is um, teenagers playing softball, but I feel like um, we have the op- we have the luxury in our league because it's small of, of um, no matter what your record is during the season, you make the playoffs. And so everything I do is focused on development because I know, you know, we can go three and 12 and we'll, we'll get a chance to, to, we might have to come from the weird part of the bracket to win, but you know, you'll, you'll, you, you want to develop everybody fully so that at the end of the year, you're playing your best. D3 coaches don't have any kind of luxury like that, right? You have to get to nine and one, eight and two to even get a sniff at the playoffs unless you win your conference with a, with a seven and three record or whatever. So they're always having to do both. So, and I think the answer is both, but without playoff considerations in there, right? If you're just trying to win your conference, um, you know, you may have a little bit more leeway. If you, if you're in the building phase anyway, and um, your administration is kind of like, this is year two or year three, and we're not necessarily expecting you to be hitting full stride at this point. We're just happy you kept the program together and your guys are still enrolling and graduating. Um, May not be as much pressure to win, but I think as any competitor, right? You want to 
develop everybody as much as you can and win at the same time. So uh, there's there's no way out. Yeah, I think that this um, the, the teams that take the field in the spring are going to have a lot of opportunities to do that anyway, to, to use them developmentally. Um, you know, think of it, uh, you know, there are going to be a lot of places where, you know, the key guys are not uh, going to come back. Some of them are going to take years off, right? You know, key players at Mountain Union, some of them will not be participating this spring, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's always that opportunity to develop other guys there. Also, you know, you're probably going to want to develop people because you never know who's going to get a positive test in any given week and have to sit out a couple of practices or sit out a game or sit out until, you know, they have uh, however many ne- uh, negative tests are, uh, are required to get them back on the field. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, you said it, Keith, there are a lot of places where winning the conference championship is something that is always the goal, right? Always the first goal. It's always the first goal at Mount Union, right? Is to win the OAC and see where it goes from there this year. You know, winning the OAC, there's not anywhere to go from there, right? There's no national playoff to go to. But, uh, you know, it's an opportunity. If you're a, a program that has struggled, you know, it's kind of a sprint to the end of the season, right? You could win four games in your side of the conference and then play for a conference championship on that final week of the season. And, you know, if you're, I don't know, I'm going to throw out Sol Ross State, right? Uh, the odds of Sol Ross State winning the ASC in a normal season, pretty low. But, you know... In a short series, anything can happen, right? Now I'm I'm uh, it's, I've gone this far into the podcast without throwing down a baseball reference, but there was mine right there. Coaches may have a lot of leeway to do that this fall. They may they may be able to be like, eh, it's not a real season, you know. And I'm air quoting here; nobody can see this, but it's not a real season. We're just trying to develop our guys. We just want to get ourselves to a point where we play well, and we don't care as much about the record, whether it's four and four, two and six, six and two. But that doesn't apply everywhere, as we've said, right there. Mount Union, if Mount Union played three games. They expect to win all three or even just within your conference structure. If we're talking about like the SAA, right, like like center and um, and uh, Barry and teams, you know, they expect to win however many games they play. So um, it's going to vary, I think. But um, but I do think you'll probably see differing approaches from different schools and um the, the only thing that would worry me a little bit about that is if you're developing, you know, you don't know what you're developing for. Are you developing for the fall of 2021? Will, will the next season not happen on time? Will all your kids be back? Like, there is some level of, of seize the day. Now is the time to seize the day. Now is the time to seize the day. May have to come into play because you just don't know how many games you're going to get in the season following. Ooh, the season following. So the season following is going to end with a stag bowl in Annapolis, Maryland. Annapolis, Salem, Humble, Texas, and Canton announces the next four stag bowl hosts. Uh, I should say, of course, that's the 2022 stag bowl. Uh, the 2021 stag bowl is also in Canton. But that means that, you know, for the next several years, the stag is going to move every year. I know you're super psyched about Annapolis because I don't think I have to pay for a hotel room for you if it's in Annapolis, right? Man, I mean, the, the drive time will be amazing. I live in Northern Virginia, for uh, those of you who don't know. Annapolis is also a cool little um, city. It's probably better visited in the summer, just for the record, than, um, you know, when you see all the sailboats out on the the, uh, the bay rather than um, December. Um but, you know, great food, great because Nate, it's the home of Navy. There's always I, I hate to go to pomp and circumstance again, but there's a lot of that uh, in and around the city. Uh, yeah, but I'm mostly just excited that I can like leave my house uh, the morning of the stag bowl will be there. Or, you know, I could go to the Gallardi trophy thing and come home at night and, and that could be on Wednesday and still go to the game on, on Friday night or Saturday. So I am pretty psyched about that. I think um, st- I still want to see what Canton does yeah, because that's got a lot of potential as a as a host area obviously home of the pro football hall of fame you got the the ohio people and and of course mountain union uh fan base around that area so if you get in a situation where in one of those two years that canton has it um that mount union is in it or someone else from ohio you know we've seen john carroll make a run um you know there there are other certainly playoff caliber teams in Ohio and in driving distance from Ohio, you know, somewhere like, um, I was, I, Wisconsin, I, you know, right. Br- Illinois. Right. I was actually thinking upstate New York where like Brockport is a lot closer to mentally, right. Especially if you live out West and you don't really think about East coast geography, 
or Midwest geography, you don't think of New York as close to Ohio, but it's actually not that bad of a drive. Pennsylvania, uh, Wesley, you could get a fan base to, to Canton from a lot of places in D3 if someone out of the ordinary crew of, you know, six to eight to 10 schools that normally make it. If somebody weird makes it to, to a stag bowl in one of those years, um, like this past year. I say by 2025, who knows what weird will be or what normal will be when that second stag bowl comes to Canton. And this was the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 278, released on October 24th of 2020. Thanks for listening and uh, keep an eye out for our continuing coverage. I mean, whatever there is to cover will be here. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or any of the places where podcasts are sold. They're not sold. You just download them for free. Either way, you can help other football fans find it by giving us a nice rating and a review. And we really appreciate those ratings. I checked in on them a couple of weeks ago, and it was nice to have them. Thank you so much. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? It's the only place you can talk about Division Three sports these days. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be at your tailgate. So you can join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Lots of guests uh, gave us their time for this edition of our show. Thanks to them. Thanks to the sports information directors for uh, helping set this up as well. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Six years from now, it could be Methodist. It probably couldn't be Methodist making the Stag Bowl. But you think about, you know, what's going to happen when five more seasons take place. A lot of stuff could change. Muhlenberg or Johns Hopkins. That'd be an interesting one. There you go. Muhlenberg versus Johns Hopkins in the Stag Bowl in Canton in 2025. Hopefully not in Humble, Texas in 2024, because that would be, um, I'm going to guess it would be about 150 people in the stands like there was last year. Yeah. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.